Our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we come to you this evening um, with a heart of worship, lifting high your name, the name of Jesus Christ, the name in which we can be saved, that we run to as our strong tower. We thank you, Lord, for your word that is before us, that we can read and that we can understand through um, your Holy Spirit that illuminates your word to us. And we pray, Father, that you would do that this evening, that you would use me to speak your truth to your people, um, that they may truly experience you um, through this text of Scripture to fully understand what it means to be in Christ and to live that out as a testimony to the world. And I pray, Father, that you would just give me the words to speak and that you would prepare the hearts of your people to receive it now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll read the next um, few verses here in chapter 2, starting with verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. I'd also like to read quickly some verses from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, actually verses 14 through 16. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your lights so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. As believers, the testimony of our lives should point others to Christ. As believers, the testimony of our lives should point others to Christ. And the testimony of our lives, ultimately, because of that, is not meaningless. We have been saved for a purpose. Uh, that purpose was clearly stated by Peter in some of the previous verses at the end of verse 9, where he's, or verse 9, which says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what's the purpose? The purpose is simply that, that we have been saved ultimately to, as it says here, to show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we, were, we are ultimately saved for God, through Christ, to bring us back to that which we were originally created to do, which is ultimately to glorify him and enjoy him forever. 
And when we look back in the garden, we can see that that's exactly what Adam and Eve were created for, to, to glorify God as a demonstration of his glory and to enjoy that relationship with him forever. And as those who have been redeemed, I think what that means for us is that here on this earth, as long as we are here on this earth as, as redeemed children of God, God's new covenant people, we are to live lives that radiate the light of Jesus Christ and that testify to the gospel. That's what Peter is saying here in this text, that our lives should radiate the light of Jesus Christ and ultimately be a testimony to the world, testimony to those who witness our lives. And for that reason, I've I've chosen to title this evening's message, The Christian Life as a Battle and a Witness. The Christian Life as a Battle and a Witness. So we've come to these next set of verses here, verses 11 and 12 that we read in 1 Peter chapter 2. And these verses begin somewhat of a new section within, um, within Peter's letter to these believers. Up until this point, um, starting from chapter 1 verse 13 all the way through chapter 2 verse 10, Peter has been speaking to these Christians, to these believers in Asia Minor, and um, Encouraging them in how they should relate with one another as believers. How they interact um, and just how, how they um, relate to one another as believers. He says um, back in verse 22, he says that, Seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. So he's talking about loving one another. He's talking about the brotherhood who loves one another. Then in the, the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about being growing up spiritually um, and sort of applying that love one towards another, so not... Um, let, sorry, he says, laying aside all malice and guile, hypocrisies, envies, evil speaking towards one another. He should say that, says that we should grow up together as a spiritual house to mature spiritually one another as believers. But as we come to these new set of verses here, um, from chapter 2, verse 11, right on in through chapter 3, Peter now shifts his focus towards not how these believers should necessarily relate to one another, but how the believer relates to unbelievers, to the Gentiles, to those outside of the body of Christ. So he sort of expands outward of how we relate to an unbelieving world. So not just how we interact with one another, you know, oftentimes as we would think here on a Sunday or on a Wednesday night, but he sort of brings it to the Monday, as it were, to our day-to-day lives and our interactions that we all have with an unbelieving world every single day. And oftentimes it is a world that is suspicious at best and oftentimes very hostile towards the children of God. And especially for these believers in Asia Minor, they were experiencing hostility towards them because they were followers of Christ, because they were Christians. And Peter understands this fact. He's addressing that here in this letter. And he's not naive to the fact that as these believers are interacting with the unbelieving world, with the Gentiles, as he puts it, that they are watching The world is watching, and often not necessarily listening so much to what we're saying, as believers in Christ, not listening to what we're saying, but watching how we live. 
And as it says in our, here in our text, it says, those things which they shall behold. So they are beholding us. They are watching us. They see our lives. And that says something. And Peter touches in the following verses, sort of as we, we follow through um, with the, what he touches on right after, starting in verse 13 on right through chapter 3, um, Peter touches on many different aspects of our lives, very practical aspects of our lives, and how, we, how our lives are a testimony to an unbelieving world. And they, and they say something um, within society at large, within how we relate to the government, um, within our workplaces, so between servants and within, between masters, within the home, so the authority within home between a husband and a wife and how that relationship takes place. All of these spheres, as it were, of authority and ways in which we, as the children of God, interact with an unbelieving world, Peter touches on so many of those different um, spheres of authority, as it were. And it really highlights, again, just that, that fact that how we respond in these different situations says something. What we do speaks, oftentimes as the phrase goes, our actions speak louder than words. And, and how we interact with an unbelieving world says something to them. And this text makes it very clear that our goal as believers... As, as followers of Christ, our goal in, in every instance is to live in a way that unbelievers will witness the transforming work of Christ in our lives. That this world is watching and they are witnessing the work, God's redemptive work in our lives, the transforming work of Christ in our lives, and that that witness will move them to repentance, to put their faith in Christ, and ultimately to glorify God in the day of visitation, as it says here. That's the purpose. That's the mission here. And that's exactly what he says is the mission of the church. Back again in verse 9, to show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. We are, as Jesus said, a light, uh, lights in this world, and we are a city on a hill. And this should be the desire of every one of us as believers and as followers of Christ. So the question is, how? How can we do this? Where do we start? And I think Peter gives us, um, this evening, he gives us in these verses the how of how we can actually do this. And he, he backs that up with, with the foundation of why we do this. But let's start first with the how. He begins in verse 11. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. He starts off with these words, I beseech you, dearly beloved. I urge you. It's, it's, he's not so much giving a command to them, though it is an, an instruction, an imperative to them. He, he's urging them, in, and, and not just saying, you, you must do this, but I, I'm pleading with you. I'm urging you to, to listen to what I am saying and to do this, to take this instruction seriously. And by doing that, he's, he's not painting this picture of this sort of as a duty that we have. You know, oftentimes we, or we can get caught into this, this mindset that um, our Christian life is a duty. This is our duty to do these things, to, to, to live a good Christian life. But that is not the right way to think about it. In fact, 
Um, that's not the way that, that the children of God even can think about it. This, our life as a Christian is not a duty. It is a joy because obeying and following God and his, his precepts and living those things out brings joy in our lives. Obedience brings joy, but or brings joy for those who are born again, for those who have that new nature. In the same way that for those who do not have that new nature, for them to sin and to live the way that this world lives is not a duty to them. It's not a duty for those who are unregenerate, who have not been given that new nature, who have not been born again. It's not a duty to sin. They do it because that's what they do. That's what they like to do. And in the same sense, when we are born again, when we've been given this new nature, though we have our flesh, our, the Spirit of God dwelling within us changes us that to live out the Christian life is not a duty. It's not something that weighs us down, that we feel uh, this heavy weight of responsibility. Though it at times can be difficult, though it is, is, is a hard thing and there is suffering and there are trials and there are difficulties that come as a result, ultimately obeying God and following Him brings joy in our lives because that's the desire that is in our hearts, because our hearts have been changed. And... Peter starts off this way by addressing the believers by, 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 he says, I beseech you, I plead with you, I urge you. And then he addresses them again as strangers and pilgrims. He says, as strangers and pilgrims. And he sort of builds it upon this premise. And he brings up this, this theme of, of sort of their identity um, that he's brought up before and he continually brings up throughout his letter. He's already done it back in the, in the opening verse, in verse 1 of, of, or the very opening of his letter. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he addresses them there as strangers. And then again in verse 17, he says, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And then he again addresses them here as strangers and pilgrims. So the idea here is that he's reminding them again and again that their identity, their citizenship is not in this world. As the song says, they are just passing through, and this world is not their home. And for all of us who are God's children, this world is not our home. We are just passing through. We are like those who, it says in Hebrews 11, um, sought a heavenly kingdom whose builder and maker is God. Um, We don't dwell on this earth and set our roots on this earth the way that the people of this world do. There is a distinction in every way. We are fundamentally different. This world is not our home. Our home is in heaven, and our identity is found in Christ and in his kingdom, though we reside here on this earth. And notice how, again, just I want to highlight the fact that Peter um, is giving this instruction, this imperative, based on that premise. You know, he was just in the previous verses talking about who they are in Christ. He, he made that so clear. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. He's identifying so clearly who they are. And, and right from the beginning of this chapter, he sets a, a solid foundation of what God has done for them in Christ. He grounds his imperative in this reality of who they are and what God has done for them. And by doing this, Peter makes it crystal clear, ultimately, always pointing back to what Christ has done, 
on the cross, that they can only do these things because of what Christ has done. When he gives this instruction, they can only fulfill these things because of what Christ has done on the cross, the victory that he has. They can only live lives that glorify God, that shine as a witness to the world, that testify to the gospel because of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, we can never forget this fact. We can never forget the fact that in our lives, we, we, we live in this, we rest in this fact, and we can only do what Peter is urging these believers to do in our lives. We can only do those things because of what Christ has done for us. He is our victor. He has conquered sin and death. And it is only because of that that we have victory. And he says here, he goes on, he says in verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. So he puts it first in the negative here. He, he encourages them or he um, commands them to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against their soul. I'll clarify in a moment what those fleshly lusts are, but first of all, he's highlighting, again, this fact that we must abstain from these things, and he, by grounding it again in the imperative, he is showing, or sorry, in the indicative, he is showing that ultimately this is impossible without the power of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 5 says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So he's talking about the flesh and the Spirit. So when Peter says, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against your soul, what's he talking about here? What are these fleshly lusts that he's referring to? All of us have natural desires that dwell within us. We're born with Desires of the flesh, um, desires that for food, desires for relationship, for friendship, desire for sex, desire for any of those natural desires that all of us have naturally within us. And I guess the question is, is are those the desires that Peter is referring to here when he says that we should abstain from fleshly desires? I think the obvious answer is no. I think we all understand that, that those are natural within us and within their right context, those things are good. But I think to illustrate this point, I, point, I just, I want to have you look back again, and I keep coming back to this, but look back at the end of verse 9, because there's something in there that I think helps to, to clarify this for us. Again, the end of verse 9 says that we are called to show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Look at those last two words, this, this descriptive word that he uses for light. He calls it a marvelous light. When you think about marveling at something, to, to, to have an awe of something, Peter is saying that we are called out of darkness into his marvelous light, to marvel at the light. And what is that light? I think we all know that the light that he's referring to is Jesus Christ, the light of the world. So, when we connect that back now to what he's saying here, that we should abstain from fleshly lusts, and we ask, what are those fleshly lusts that Peter is referring to? I think it's, it's safe to say, and I would argue that those fleshly lusts are anything that causes us not to marvel 
at that light. To not, to, to not marvel at the light of Jesus Christ. Anything that causes, that, that diminishes or that takes away our desire, our satisfaction, our passion for or to marvel at that light. So the fleshly lusts, in a sense, are misdirected passions. Lusts are passions, desires that we have. So anything that is good, any of those desires of the flesh that we have that are either in the wrong time or in the wrong proportion, are things that Satan takes and twists and misdirects our passions in the wrong way. And that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Um, he, he brought before them um, and he, he, I guess, stirred within them though that lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we see that happening everywhere in this world. Um, those who have these, these lusts and these desires that are so taken out of proportion, whether it be a desire for food that is not just a, a natural desire, but to take it in excess. Or whether it is to, you know, a desire for intimacy that is taken within the wrong context, you know, outside of the context of marriage. And for all of us, we need to examine our lives um, and ask ourselves, you know, when, when, when Peter is referring to abstaining from these fleshly lusts, we need to examine our lives and, and the desires that we have in the light of that. And when he says here to abstain, to cease, to refrain from these things, he's talking about to completely put these things away. Not to minimize them, not to cut back, not to have less of them in our lives, but to abstain from them. Like when, when Paul says in... Um, in one of his letters, he says that we should abstain from fornication. He didn't mean that we should fornicate less. No, he meant to completely refrain from that, that there should be no hint of sexual immorality in our lives. And that's the same word that, that Peter is using here when he says abstain from fleshly lusts. And Peter understands how dangerous these things are. Not just for the sake of our witness as Christians, but for the sake of our souls. He says, and he rightly identifies it here when he says that they war against our souls. And as a result, we are in a war, we are in a battle, as it were, that is constantly warring against our souls in, within our flesh. And as long as those dire desires remain within us, as long as they are present within our lives, and to some degree they will be until the day that we no longer have these bodies and we are given new glorified bodies, ultimately our responsibility is to fight against those things, to kill that sin in our lives, those desires within our lives, to conquer them and to war against them, as it says, because they war against us. Because if allowed to triumph, they will ultimately destroy our souls, as it says here, and take our witness along with it. And now he sort of shifts into this focus, not just the Christian life as a battle, but now the Christian life as a witness. And let's go on to verse 12. He says, having your conversation or your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter is speaking here directly to our witness, to our testimony, to those here within the world, and specifically to unbelievers. The way that we live our lives says something. The way that we live our lives says something to an unbelieving world. And it is, in a sense, a reflection of 
who we are as the children of God. It is a reflection of our Heavenly Father. He uses here the word conversation. I think we all know that that word doesn't speak about just what comes out of our lips, but it speaks about our conduct, our manner of life, our behavior. And it's the same word that he uses back in verse 15 of chapter 1 when he says, Be holy in all manner of conversation. Because God is holy, we are called to live lives of holiness and to reflect the holiness of our Heavenly Father as His children. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, as by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Our lives are to reflect inwardly that transformation that has taken place. And that transformation takes place in our lives through the renewing of our mind. This isn't about externals. This isn't about having lives that have sort of a facade of holiness that people look at us and say, wow, that's a really good person. They're so holy. They're so, like, almost untouchable in a sense. That's not what what Peter is referring to here. If people look at our lives... And if we only look different, but not are different, then I think we've missed the point. If we simply look different externally, but we inwardly are not different, then we've totally missed the point of what Peter is saying here. Our lives lived out in submission to the Word of God should be a living testimony of the transforming grace of God to an unbelieving world. And it should be visible to everyone. And I think um, Titus 2 speaks to that well. And I'd just like to read a few verses. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, just quickly. It says this, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and for the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works." So Christ gave himself for us, like this verse says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity, from all sin, unto good works. So our righteousness, the the, the redemption that we have, that perfect right standing before God, is only through Christ, but now his spirit lives within us and is sanctifying us that we can now have the power to live out lives that demonstrate that. Like it says here, to be a peculiar people, a people of his own possession, zealous of good works. He redeems us for a purpose. Again, that purpose, to show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The world is witnessing us. They are looking at us, they see our lives, and what is it that they see? How are they going to respond to that? 
I think that's, that's the next question that we have to ask ourselves. How does, this, how does the world respond to what they see in our lives? And what are the Gentiles going to do? And I think there's, there's three things that, that the remainder of this verse tells us of what will take place. First, that they will speak, that they will see, and that some, some will believe. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold or see, glorify God in the day of visitation. So let's look at these three real quickly here. Speak. Whereas they speak against you as evildoers. The first thing that we can be certain about from this text of scripture is that unbelievers will speak evil of the children of God. I can affirm that to you based upon the, the word of God that that will take place. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are they when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. This has happened throughout all of history. All of God's children, all of his faithful prophets were spoken evil of. And Jesus said it will be no different of his children. And I think it's clear to all of us that in this world, that, that, that seems to be happening more and more. Um, seems to be getting worse. Much, there's so much evil speaking of Christianity, especially in the media. We see this polarization that is taking place. And Christians are um, becoming, as it would seem, at least here in the West, more and more hated. And it's almost like, or it is what Jesus said, that in the last days that they will call good evil and evil good. This world is taking truth and and twisting it and calling it evil. And those things that are evil, they are, are praising and calling good. And those who are faithful to God will be spoken evil of as a result. So it's no surprise that they will speak evil against us. And this scripture makes that clear. But even in the midst of their evil speaking, it says here, it says, Whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the visitation. So they will behold our lives and our our good works, as it were. They shall behold those things. So even though they speak against us, they are seeing, they are witnesses of your good works. And I think that, again, just serves as a reminder for all of us that this world is watching. Even though we may not think that they see, they do see. And they will behold those things that we do as a testimony to the grace of God in our lives and living out those godly Christian lives. And your good works will put to silence their evil speaking. Like it says further down in verse 15, we didn't read it, but I'll read it now. It says, For so is the will of God that they will, that, sorry, for so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Why are they put to silence? They're put to silence because what they are saying of you, the evil speaking that they are saying towards you is not matching up with what they're seeing. There's this contrast. There's this difference. Though they speak evil against you, deep down in the conscience, they know through your good testimony that they really do see good. And your good works should contradict their testimony. Your good works should contradict the testimony of those that speak evil against you. And then finally here, as a result, some, some, will be moved 
and believe. Whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. The faithful testimony of believers will move some to believe and ultimately glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, I think of the illustration from um, Pilgrim's Progress, the, the story which I love so much. Um, <clears throat> the part of the story where Christian and Faithful go into Vanity Fair, and they're there and they can, um, they stand up as faithful witnesses. They don't partake in, you know, the vanity and the lusts, the, those actually, the, the fleshly lusts, um, I think that are so representative, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that are so present in that vanity fair. And ultimately, as the story goes, they are thrown into prison because the world hates them. They speak evil of them as a result, and they are thrown into prison, and faithful is martyred for doing what is right, for his obedience to the truth. But his testimony, his faithful testimony, ultimately brings about the I guess, conversion, as it were, of, the, of another man, Hopeful, who later joins Christian in his walk. And, and he identifies that he was brought to saving faith as a result of the faithful testimony of this man, Faithful. And I think, again, that just shows us such a beautiful picture that the good works of believers are intended for mission, They are intended for a purpose. They serve a purpose. Like it said back in Matthew 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see, that they may witness your good works and glorify your God in heaven. You know, it's not our morality that is going to change and or that is going to save people. Don't don't be fooled into the fact that people will look at us and say, Wow, that's such a good person. You know, they're so moral. You know, and that's what is somehow going to change them. It will not. Ultimately, it's the Word of God that changes people. But when you think about the fact that our lives as a testimony, our lives, our good works, our honest conversation, as Peter brings it up here, the, the Word of God lived out in the lives of His children is the means through which God draws people to Himself at times. Sometimes that is how God uses His Word to draw people to himself. You know, I think we all know the saying that um, your life is the only Bible that some people will ever read. I think that's, that's true. Or perhaps it's the first Bible that some people will ever read. Ultimately, I think if someone, or I believe that if someone comes to Christ, it will be through the Word. But it may start with the testimony of the Word lived out in your life. And that Word that they see in action will draw them to ultimately, as it says here, glorify God in the day of visitation. Not all will be saved when they observe your holy lives. In fact, later on in chapter 3, verse 16, Peter says that some, as evildoers, will reject your good works, and it will be condemnation to them. But some, and, and Peter is confident of this fact, that some will through the faithful testimony of believers, come to true faith and ultimately glorify God in the day of visitation, in the day of judgment. That's what that means, the day of visitation. And that serves as an encouragement for all of us that our testimony is not in vain. 
Though it may feel like that at times, brothers and sisters, you may feel like, what's the point? Why am I living this Christian life? Know with confidence from the Word of God that your testimony is not in vain and that some, some will believe because of the faithful testimony of you, brothers and sisters. So remain steadfast. Remain faithful. Do not grow weary in well-doing, as the Scripture says, because some will be brought to faith in Christ through the testimony of the gospel lived out in our lives and will ultimately glorify God as a result. Before we close here, I want to make just one more application. Whenever there's a command that's given in Scripture and an imperative, Satan is right there to corrupt it. So when I was going through this text and thinking about how would Satan seek to corrupt this instruction that we've been given here through the Word of God, how would Satan want to do that? Jesus said, we read it, the verse, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God and glorify your Father in heaven. Here's how I think Satan would corrupt this. Here's Satan's version of of that verse, his twisted version of that verse. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you. How would Satan corrupt this? By having you do good works and taking the glory for yourself. If your testimony does not lead others to ultimately glorify God, then it's pointless. Your good works mean nothing. And Satan is just fine with you living a moralistic life for your own glory. Whether you take that upon yourself and in the day of judgment you present that to God as your means of glorifying yourself because of your good works, no. Or whether it's to glorify yourself to the unbelieving world who looks at you and simply says, wow, that's a really good person. If your testimony does not lead others to glorify God, then it's pointless. Don't miss that fact, brother and sister. Don't miss the purpose of your good works. It is not for your glory. Satan will do everything he can to take that and twist it. And I've seen that in my own life. I've seen how Satan has, has tried, has or times when I have, by the grace of God, done those works but taken the glory for myself. Ultimately, it is God who, by His grace, does all of this through us. We don't take any credit for ourselves for the work of, of his, his transforming grace that has taken place in our lives. And ultimately, the glory goes to Him. And ultimately, it is for the witness of others that they too may be drawn into relationship with Christ, that they would put their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. And I pray that that would be true in each of our lives and that we would, again, not grow weary in well-doing, that we would remain faithful and steadfast in our godly example, and that ultimately, in all of this, Christ would be honored and glorified through it. May God bless his word to us. Amen.